Hello to all my fellow 101 listeners out there. I know it's been quite a good while since I was on the air last with you guys, and I do recall the last time being on the air was uh, from this past Thursday. To me, that seems like a little bit of an eternity, given with everything that's been going on in my life, and it hasn't been all bad, but uh, I know that I've been uh, busy, to say the least, uh, which is not a bad thing. I know I do recall telling um, you all, uh, my fellow 101 listeners, that I was going to be on assignment and those of you who've been with me for quite some time probably already know what that phrase means uh, deep down inside. For those of you who are new to my podcasts, uh, going forward, whenever whenever you hear me say I'm on assignment, that could mean a lot of things. Uh, one thing it could mean is that I'm uh, out of town on vacation. And uh, some of you are probably wondering, well, where'd you go um for vacation, given that um, you only had a couple of days and, and the weekend uh, to spare. Well, my wife and I went to uh, Colonial Williamsburg to see it all decked out at, at Christmas time. Now, we've seen uh, Colonial Williamsburg decked out at Christmas time more than once, and I'm sure some of you probably would think to yourselves, well, if you've seen it decked out once at Christmas, what's the point in seeing it decked out again? Well, there are a lot of reasons to go back at Christmas time. Uh, for one, it's a traditional thing to do. Secondly, um, no matter how many times you go to Williamsburg, regardless of the season, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, that is, you're always bound to uh, learn something new if you are uh, very passionate about history like I am. And third, it's just the grand ambience of it all. You know, yes, you can see um, places decorated, and all of it's great, but if it's something very historic and special, then certainly don't uh, take it for granted. But I did have the fortune while uh, vacationing in Colonial Williamsburg to uh, listen in on some uh, very um, exciting um, stuff, uh, most notably at the Charlton stage where uh, reenactors who portray a particular character of the uh, 18th century whose uh, presence would have been made known in uh, Colonial Williamsburg's heyday they uh, go about educating the public behind um, behind what role they served and and why their role was of uh, great importance. I didn't get a chance to see him speak this time around, but I did have seen him speak before. Uh, the Reverend Gowan pamphlet. He um, led uh, what was called First African uh, First um, Baptist uh, Church in uh, Colonial Williamsburg, and it's not far from the. Um, primary uh, drag of uh, Duke of Gloucester Street, but uh, Gowan Pamphlet was one of the uh, first uh, African-American uh, Baptist ministers in uh, colonial America, and the reason why he took uh, the last name Pamphlet was because he was inspired by a famous individual, as a matter of fact, whom we will be learning about um, later on in this uh, podcast segment, so if I give the answer away now, I'm sure some of you would probably wonder, well, what's the point in not only um, talking about this uh, famous uh, person whom uh, Reverend Gowan Pamphlet was um, influenced by, but nonetheless, I got a chance to talk briefly with the um, with the gentleman who who portrays Reverend Gowan Pamphlet, and um, I I felt it was uh, necessary to give him one of my uh, podcast cards to help him um, go about uh, doing things. Um, 
in a variety of ways, and he was very appreciative of it. And uh, I told him that I had uh, learned why he had gotten, why he uh, took the last name of Pamphlet. So, you know, I've always had this envision of wanting to work somewhere like, say, for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation or Monticello. And I don't know if that opportunity will come. I, I don't think it'll happen anytime soon, but somewhere down the road um, in the future, that opportunity might arise, but I do believe that whenever I go uh, to places of historical significance that it is important for me to give something back, and not only by engaging those who um, portray um, the characters that they play, but by giving them uh, podcast cards of mine simply because I'm trying to help them out in any way I can, and they are always very appreciative of it because I know that uh, for those who... Um, who play a particular character, like I know the gentleman who at Williamsburg who portrays Patrick Henry, and I had the chance to speak to him on uh, Saturday. He's been playing that role for over 20 years, and I think it's fair to say that after 20 years of portraying Patrick Henry, that gentleman is constantly learning something new about Mr. Henry, and all, and not so much all of the accomplishments he achieved, but how he went about living his daily life. So it's more than just the accomplishments of, that these individuals made. It's how they went about living their daily lives during the time in which they lived in. After all, it is fair to say that those who came before us did live in um, challenging times and lived in and lived during some times when things weren't always as grand as what they might have seemed to us from the outside. Well, I do know that we have a lot of, of ground to cover in our next uh, podcast uh, segment topic, Two Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. We are going to learn about a particular piece of legislation that, um, that uh, to me, I did not actually know about before. Believe it or not, I didn't. But thank goodness, I, as a result of having read Rebels at Sea, I learned about this piece of legislation and came to the realization of just how profoundly impacted the colonies were by the legislation itself, which ultimately, over time, led them to, um, it, it may not have been the ultimate piece of legislation, but it was one in a series of um, ill-passed um, legislation um, enacted by Parliament that ultimately led the colonists, or the colonies, to eventually sever ties with the mother country, being uh, England. So let's get the uh, show on the road and let's be prepared for our first leadoff question. Uh, what legislation did uh, Parliament enact come late 1775 but did not reach American waters until February of 1776? So let's keep in mind, folks, you know, England's about 3,000 miles away, you know, across the ocean, so we don't get breaking news alerts right away. But even after a couple of months, once that news officially reaches American waters, to us it would be considered breaking news for its time. So what legislation did Parliament enact come late 1775 but did not reach American waters until February of 1776? The answer is the Prohibitory Act. You know, when we think of prohibiting, that means that we're not allowing something um, to happen. We're not tolerating um, an improper uh, behavior. We're not tolerating anything that we feel 
is uh, an improper norm. Uh, but the Pro Prohibitory Act was uh, passed by Parliament in December of 1775. The legislation itself completely severed all trading re relations, or rather I should say connections, between Britain's 13 American colonies, including um, her other colonies within the British Empire. So in other words, the colonies, the 13 American colonies, were no longer allowed to trade with Britain, nor could they uh, trade with uh, colonies within the British Empire who remained loyal to the crown, being those uh, countries in the uh, Caribbean and uh, the British West Indies. The Prohibitory Act left all colonial vessels totally vulnerable to unrestricted seizures by British ships, along with making it legal for British naval officers to force, or I should say, capture American sailors onto their ships. Impressment. So in other words, Parliament doesn't see anything wrong with any measure of impressment now in, um, in um, getting onto um, American ships, inspecting them, but doing so without uh, proper means of consent by the Americans, uh, doing so by not showing any signs of probable cause, but doing so at their own expense as a, mean of, as a means of punishing the subjects uh, for their um, improper behaviors towards the crown. So, so yes, the uh, Prohibitory Act has left all colonial vessels, as I said a moment ago, totally vulnerable to unrestricted seizures by British ships, along with making it legal for British naval officers to force or capture American sailors onto their ships. All 13 American colonies in North America were no longer under the crown's protection. Scary. But at the same time, if this is the, the price you're willing to pay in terms of um, taking a stand and standing up for yourself against a bully being, in this case, the crown, um, parliament, uh, England as a country, then I guess you don't have any other choice but to take a stand knowing what risks could eventually come. But at the same time, is it fair to say that the uh, colonists were given proper consent about this uh, incoming legislation that would pretty much uh, take away their fundamental rights and trading with regards to trading not only with England but with other colonies under the crown's protection like the British West Indies and the Caribbean. Yes, it does come as a huge shock. As I've said before and I'd say it again, you know, John Adams said, you, you know, it's one thing to tax an Englishman, but you must get his consent. If you don't get if you don't get the consent of an Englishman in terms of his uh providing proper consent towards um, being taxed upon, then how can the uh, relationship itself between government and her people be valid? It just simply doesn't work that way. So the uh, legislation alone was viewed as a measure of economic warfare where England sought to weaken or let alone destroy her subjects' economies by placing blockades Blockades, you know, being restrictions, and usually when I think of blockades, um, in modern day times we tend to think of like naval blockades. Uh, the one that often comes to my mind is something being famous was what uh, President John F. Kennedy did back in October of 62 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the 13-day crisis, 
where he ordered a blockade of naval ships into uh, Havana Harbor, and they were able to prevent uh, further uh, Soviet uh, ships um, or from coming into Havana with um, nuclear weapons. So ultimately, in the end, of course, Nikita Khrushchev uh, agreed to withdraw all nuclear um, weapons or missiles from uh, Havana, Cuba, and President Kennedy agreed to remove all um, nuclear testing missiles from uh, Turkey in Eastern Europe. So that was a crisis onto itself that was um, that was averted beyond the sky ceiling. But unfortunately, we don't have leaders. There are those there are those in Parliament who are sympathizing with the colonies, but they are a small minority. But on the other hand, we have those in Parliament and those working for the Crown who um, who simply just don't like how the colonists have behaved. They don't like how the colonies are, um, in the eyes of King George, have become ungrateful subjects. So, yes, these blockades are restrictions, and you, in this case we could say that the restrictions are on vessels entering entering to leaving port cities, like, say, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, New York City, Philadelphia, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So, as a result, this uh, it really is fair to say that even the Prohibitory Act itself um, was also enacted as a result of the colonies rebelling against British rule. So, it was a series of things that led up to this uh, act being um, put into law, but because of the uh, severity that uh, Parliament and the Crown saw, they felt that there was just no other choice but to cut off all trading relations. I don't know who's going to really be impacted by this, but I, I think it is fair to say that, you know, the the people in Boston have already been severely impacted with the uh, port closure uh, from 1774. But it is fair to say that um, that those whom are still trying to work out some kind of reconciliation with the Crown... All of that has, we can all say now that that's pretty much waved bye-bye. So any means of trading with, uh, with England now is going to be uh, useless. So this is another reason now for why the colonists can say, hey, why don't we start making more of our own stuff here? While all, while all that sounds great, the problem is that we don't have the manpower to uh, mass-produce items like textile and manufactured goods on a same uh, mass uh, scale um, quantity level like you can in England, which has a, a greater population of people, uh, whereas colonial America by 1776 really only has no more than about under 3 million, about 2.5 million at best. Delegates to the Continental Congress, like John Adams himself, viewed the Prohibitory Act as being so bad to where legislation alone or rather to where the legislation alone became the final straw which broke which would eventually break the camel's back you ever heard that phrase the straw that broke the camel's back in other words it just got to the point where where either one side or both sides couldn't take it anymore and couldn't come to some agreement or resolution to modify the existing um state of tension to where to where Whatever straws were holding the camels back in place are now no longer um, valid. It means that all uh, means of uh, reconciliation or um, modification to resolve the existing problem or problems 
is now, has now become uh, rendered useless. So, so for John Adams, the prohibitory act was so severe to, yes, where the legislation itself became the ultimate straw that eventually broke the camel's back. In essence, the law itself didn't care about any past grievances endured by the colonists whose basic, whose basic rights were deprived without any means of formal, prop, formal proper consent. Well, yes, you know, the Stamp Act was repealed, but that that cel that celebratory moment was short was it was only short lived by the colonists because you know they got another dosage of um bad news with those townshed duties that placed um taxes on tea lead paint paper glass parliament repealed every other measure with the townshed duties except the tea then you had a whole host of other legislation like the quartering act you had <laughs> Then you had the uh, coercive, intolerable acts. Um, then you had that piece of legislation in 1772 that pretty much um, allowed, uh, in, in the aftermath of the Gatsby affair, that uh, pretty much allowed um, allowed England to um, basically um, basically um, that was the Dockyard Act that held that anyone considered suspicious or suspected of burning British vessels could be extradited and tried in England, even if the offense did not happen on English um, soil. So just these um, actions alone are very, um, they are very um, uncomfortable to say the least. They are very, um, they are very um, unwelcoming. Was Congress, as an entire body, more open behind privateering versus independence, being total separation from England following Parliament's prohibitory act? Well, it turns out that uh, Congress was, in fact, more open-minded about privateering versus declaring total separation from England. Given the circumstances at hand where the 13 colonies were no longer under the Crown's pr protection via the Prohibitory Act, many in Congress believed it was necessary for private vessels, being the privateers, to be built and outfitted to where their crews could defend their respective home uh, coastal towns, villages, and cities against foreign invasion. In this case, folks, it's an easy one. England. But it was at the insistence of merchants and other leading figures within Philadelphia whom got the ball rolling. So in other words, yes, there were those in Congress who, who wanted to go forward with privateering, but the only way they could really get it going was to hear those from the outside whose businesses were impacted um, by, uh, by the uh, multiple pieces of legislation that Parliament had, had enacted over the course of, say, 10 years, but more so in the aftermath with the Prohibitory Act and no longer being able to trade not only with England, but with the other uh, colonies under the uh, Crown's uh, authority, being that of the West, British West Indies and the Caribbean. So there has to be something to keep uh, businesses afloat, uh, but there has to be something that can keep um, people's livelihoods afloat because sitting around and doing nothing just isn't going to cut it. So it is fair to say that the merchants and the other and various other leading figures within Philadelphia could have represented their own um, version of being an interest group of their time in persuading uh, congressional 
and persuading members of Congress to go forward and approve uh, the motion to get um, vessels, being those of privateers, built and outfitted to where their crews could go about performing the necessary functions in defending uh, coastal towns, villages, and cities against uh, foreign invasions um, via from uh, England. Now, March 22nd of 1776, an amendment was introduced which stated the following in quotations, wherein the king was made the author of our miseries instead of the ministry. I'll repeat it again. Wherein the king was made the author of our miseries instead of the ministry. I can tell you this much, a debate upon the language in this amendment, or rather I should say based upon the wording in this amendment, a debate lasted up to four hours on March 22nd of 1776, where it involved uh, two opposing parties. We're not talking Republicans or Democrats, people. They just had uh, different names for their time. You really had what were called the radicals and the moderates. The radicals want complete separation from England. The moderates are still holding out on some hope, a slim hope, that Parliament and the Crown will still find, will still uh, come to their common senses and realize that, hey, we need to, um, we need to read carefully into this Olive Branch uh, petition. We need to actually make up for uh, past grievances as much as I'd like to believe that the moderates stand a chance, I think their chances are about, um, at this point, are getting very close to one in a hundred that Parliament's going to bend and change their minds. So for the radicals, they're going to be led by Mr. John Adams. And when I think of um, a leader in the moderate faction, that would be of uh, Mr. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. Both sides fought fiercely over the amendment's wording. John Adams and other radicals believed everyone, high up, from Parliament to Crown, were all responsible for the colony's issues. So, in other words, nobody was exempt. The moderates believed the colonies were going up against Parliament's injustices versus the Crown. Now, let's keep in mind, folks, that the king can't uh, make laws. On the other hand, the king in this case being King George III, 1776, he can advise Parliament as to what they should um, discuss uh, during the, the time that they're in session, but he can't persuade Parliament to say this is how you need to go about enacting the bills or amendments brought before the body into law. In other words, Parliament has the right to go about making compromises on their end that will ultimately get um, enacted into law. So, yes, for the moderates, they believe that it's Parliament's injustices, but at the same time, what the moderates don't realize is that even the Crown himself has been persuading Parliament, probably behind closed doors, to say, hey, look, keep anteing up the pressure on, the, on our subjects, because the more pressure we ante on our subjects, are subjects, the greater the likelihood that maybe some of them, some of the colonies will start to fold and come to their senses and resubmit their allegiance to the crown. Well, I think it's fair to say that most of the colonies and most of the leaders 
are, 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 are smart enough not to fall for it. I'm not saying that the moderates aren't, aren't bad people. The problem is that for some of our moderate leaders, like Mr. John Dickinson, you know, it's one thing to want to declare separation from England. But if you do that, what are you going to replace the government that you've been living under? What are you going to replace it with? And if you do declare separation from England, who's to say that the that a new form of government that you create will make you any happier or make you any better off than you than what you were previously living under? So in other words, for Mr. John Dickinson, he saw think of an apron when you wear an apron when you're cooking, uh, you you uh, tie it into a knot from behind. For Mr. Dickinson. The knot represented the 13 colonies being under the subject of the crown's authority. Once the knot became undone in John Dickinson's eyes, there was no going back. In other words, the colonies have fled. The colonies are on their own. They've turned their backs on those above them who've been looking out for them for so long. So for John Dickinson, what he's afraid of is that it could basically lead to the equivalent of a modern-day bad divorce, where both sides can't come to any kind of meaningful resolution. So, yes, this is, um, this is a very uh, tough dilemma, nonetheless, for the uh, radicals and the moderates. I have to wonder if any kind of compromise will be made. Some delegates, though, viewed the wording of the amendment itself as an all-out declaration behind total separation from England. And I could see where Mr. John Dickinson of uh, Pennsylvania would have uh, seen it that way. And it's probably fair to say that a fair number of uh, delegates from Virginia might have felt the same way, too. And the reason why I say Virginia is because she is the largest of the 13 colonies. And being the largest of the 13 colonies, she always has the most to gain, but yet she also could have the most to lose, depending on the circumstances at hand. And it might be fair to say that there are we might be surprised to know this, folks, but even Thomas Jefferson himself was a moderate by March of March 22nd of 1776, or just before then. Uh, Jefferson was hesitant at first, but as the months got closer, leading up to uh, the end of June into the start of July, he knew by then things weren't going to be able to uh, no longer be the same. So. We just have to be reminded that not everybody was a radical right away, that there were those who were still holding out for some form of reconciliation uh, just months before uh, July 4th of 1776. But there is uh, some good news to uh, report here, and that uh, Congress, although Congress did uh, strike down the amendment, that is, the wording in the amendment of wherein the king was made the author of our miseries instead of the ministry, a day later, on March the 23rd, uh, Congress passed into law a privateering resolution. Well, so Congress did get something done. To me, that's better than nothing. Congress gave privateers the freedom to capture all British vessels, including later on the power to seize neutral ships, along with transporting goods, um, Rather, I should say, uh, Congress gave privateers the freedom to capture all British vessels, including later on the power to seize neutral ships whom were transporting goods destined for England, the Caribbean, and the British West Indies. So when I think of a, a neutral ship, how about, say, um, 
one that could be uh, from Holland, uh, one that could be from Spain. Now, of course, as it as the war does progress over time, Spain will turn against England. But basically, any neutral ship that um, that does not favor a particular side is fair game for the uh, privateersmen. Even the Continental Navy. Once the Continental Navy is created, those ships will be given the same freedoms as privateers get or as privateers themselves got from attacking all British vessels to capturing neutral ships transporting British supplies. Congress was smart enough to know by this point that there were no other proper means for providing adequate defense to security measures. In other words, Congress doesn't have the money to build... Um, really to build uh, the most simple uh, defensive walls. I'm not trying to make this as an excuse, but they but they don't. But what they do have are, but what they have put into law now is um, a resolution um, allowing for privateering to go forward. So Congress has now given the colonies the proper means necessary to build vessels in the fight against uh, the British. So Congress has taken a great step. To me, this could be seen as something like a public or a, a private partnership act where, where Congress um, is doing its part and then um, another uh, group is doing um, something else. Uh, which colonies uh, not only were the first to enact their own uh, privateering laws, but also went about modifying them to reflect uh, congressional uh, terms? How about the colonies of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island? Going forward, Congress went about supplying the colonies with uh, privateering uh, commissions, which would get filled out by applicants applying for letters of marquee. Uh, the commissions consisted of empty uh, spaces for name and tonnage. Uh, when, when we think of tonnage, folks, that's uh, weight and tons of cargo or freight. Um, the empty spaces also would have applied to the number of cannons and uh officers and crew on board. Applicants had to notate whether the vessel itself would act alone as a privateer or through a letter of uh, marquee where the vessel or vessels partook in both trade and capturing prizes. So, you know, this is important to, uh, to notate ahead of time because if you don't notate things properly, then how is your ship, how is your um, vessel going to be considered a legal a ship that is valid uh, in conducting business along the waters, proper business, I should say. Now, the owner or commander uh, was required to post or issue a bond of $5,000 for vessels under 100 tons and $10,000 for larger vessels, which were to be paid directly to Congress's president. The bond itself was meant to ensure that the commander and crew would not violate terms of commission which stated what actions privateers could and could not engage in. You have to remember, folks, we do have protocols and procedures to go by. People can't just do whatever they want to do. I mean, there does have to be a set of laws, and I think it's uh, it's important for that. Otherwise, what? how can we be seen as... I don't know if, if good stewards is the right word, but how can we be seen as a, um, as a functioning uh, body in a time of um, crisis? It's one thing to, um, 
engage an enemy in a time of crisis, but at the same time, you don't want to be engaging in actions that could um, that could lead to dire consequences, which I'll talk about here in a moment. Um, but uh, nonetheless, though, that um, yes, the bond itself was meant to ensure that the commander and crew would not violate the terms of the commissions, which stated what actions the privateers could and couldn't engage in. Uh, May of 1780 saw the bond amount increase to $20,000 for all privateers. A greater incentive there uh, for um, for basically not only wanting to become a privateersman, but by partaking in um, missions in, in general. Now, were there consequences behind improper actions taken by privateersmen? Yes. If in the event um, crewmen from enemy ships were killed, crippled, or tortured by privateersmen of American vessels, severe punishments were doled out from flogging, branding. And, you know, when, when you probably may have heard in colonial times, people got branded if they uh, committed uh, felonies. Felonies that would have involved, like, theft, you know, stealing someone's horse. Because, you know, if, if one stole another man's horse, it was basically stealing that man's livelihood who owned the horse. So if you were found guilty of theft, you were... Um, you were uh, branded on your thumb with the letter T, meaning that uh, you would carry that scar with you for the rest of your life, and people would know that you had committed um, a felony uh, crime, being that of theft, at some point um, early on in your life. So yes, there were some; those were some of the uh, severe punishments that could have been doled out if uh, improper actions were taken by privateersmen um, with regards to how they handled crewmen from enemy ships. Now, uh, one-third of the privateer uh, crew was required to be landsmen. Being non-mariners or non-traditional mariners, the goal was to restrict the number of sailors whom decided to become privateers. Congress wanted Navy ships with crews comprised of regular seasoned mariners. There, in other words, there needed to be an adequate balance of privateersmen and mariners aboard um, the greater cause. If you have more privateersmen versus... Um, traditional mariners, then I don't know how even a, a regular continental navy could have functioned. I mean, yes, I, I mean, as I mentioned early on, our continental navy never really got anywhere close to being um, right at 100 vessels or, or, or over, but the bottom line is there still needs to be an even balance of privateersmen and uh, seasoned mariners. How long had John Adams been longing for the colonies to separate entirely from England? John Adams has been longing for uh, separation from England for some time. We can go as far back as mid-1775. Now, given that that has... Um, so it would be fair to say probably since May or June of 1775 for John Adams... However, Congress's passage of the privateering law helped get all colonies closer to a path behind total separation. Remember, folks, one piece of legislation or one, um, one measure or resolution alone isn't going to be enough to um, get the Grand Slam out of the park in terms of declaring our separation uh, from England. But with every little step Congress takes... 
Every uh, measure Congress enacts where there is uh, bipartisanship from, all, uh, from, from everyone attending from all 13 colonies, it just means that they are getting closer and closer to where they know when the time is right, when they have exhausted every resource in trying to get the crown um, to um, rescind its injustices upon her subjects, and yet it fails on the crown's part, then they know. Then they'll know when it's exactly the time to go forward and taking that huge step where there will be no turning back. It's getting there, folks. It's just a matter of time. Now, what famous pamphlet? Ah, remember early on I talked about um, a gentleman named named Reverend Gowan Pamphlet, uh, who is a um, well-known African American uh, Baptist preacher in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. And I recall telling you all that I had seen him speak before and got a chance to talk with him briefly on uh, Friday, this past Friday in Colonial Williamsburg. What famous pamphlet, though, was written? It was a uh, written document. Of course, that's what a pamphlet is, or it was a written document. When was uh, this particular famous pamphlet published? On January 10th of 1776. Or, in other words, what famous pamphlet was first published on published on January tenth, seventeen seventy six? Thomas Paine's Common Sense, which assailed King George the Third's practices behind harsh treatment towards his subjects, being the thirteen colonies. So the Reverend Gowan pamphlet, folks, was inspired by Thomas Paine's Common Sense. He was inspired by it so much that he um, that he adopted um, Paine's uh, pamphlet. And and took um, a last name of a pamphlet. Very unique for the times, to say the least. Now, besides uh, Common Sense getting published on January 10th of 1776, something else happened on the same day. It didn't actually happen on January 10th, but, but the uh, people throughout the 13 colonies, I don't know if everybody from all 13 colonies, learned about it right away on January the 10th of 1776, but uh, the news had officially made made its way into American um, territory on, June, on uh, January the 10th. The same day as Thomas Paine's uh, Common Sense got published, a copy of King George's speech opening the new session of Parliament uh, from October 26th of 1775 is read in papers. The king's speech referenced his declaring war on colonies. Wow, the king the king's not interested folks in uh, reconciliation or, or resolution. And I would hope that the moderates might see that, but I can't legislate their thinking, but if I was reading that and I was a member of Congress, of course it's easier said than done. Of course a lot would depend on where I'm living. If I was living in Virginia, it might be different say versus Massachusetts. Based upon the wording, I do know that if I was living in Massachusetts or New Hampshire, and I uh, re- and I read in a paper that King George the Third has declared war on the colonies, to me that's a sign that look, this fella, who is a ty- he he may be one tyrant three thousand miles across the ocean, but he's not interested in reconciliation. So if he's not interested in recon- reconciliation, not only with me but with my fellow brethren. Um, then why should I um, why should I support this guy? Why should I support Parliament? I'm um, 
I'm severing ties to the crown. Well, just remember, even if you're a loyalist reading this, and you do have ties to the crown, I don't think you're going to uh, renege. There'd have to be a significant, compelling reason to renege. So even people's loyalties are fragile, even up at this point. So, 1776, there were 25 editions of Common Sense that got published, and within a short time, within a short time span, rather, nearly 100,000 copies were sold altogether. Roughly half a million copies got sold during the Revolutionary War. Common Sense was the ultimate setting going forward regarding the colony's future. Thomas Paine himself, believe it or not, folks, Thomas Paine himself was a privateersman during the start of the Seven Years' War. 1756 saw Paine join the crew of a British privateer known as the Terrible. Shortly after the ship sailed, typhus fever made its way on board, killing many. The irony to it all here, folks, was that Thomas Paine himself was never on this particular voyage in which the, um, the privateer Terrible set out along the waters, but he had signed on with another vessel, but, oh, but his overall time spent as a private, within the privateering industry was short-lived. Perhaps that's a blessing, because he might have uh, died a tragic death aboard, um, aboard a vessel. Now, what step did Congress uh, take on April the 6th of uh, 1776 regarding Parliament's Prohibitory Act? Congress went about opening colonial ports whom could trade with other nations' ships, except for those from Britain, including other British colonies whom still retained direct ties to England. Early June of 1776 saw the majority of the 13 colonies, including their delegates in Congress, lean towards independence. Okay, so... Things have changed significantly now since uh, mid-March of 1776 going forward into now uh, June. Despite multiple happenings taking place in Congress during June of 1776, including uh, the beginning of July, which colony had already severed its allegiance to George III in Parliament come May 4th of 1776? The answer is Rhode Island. Rhode Island was totally appalled by England's restrictions regarding the colony's uh, commerce practices, including harassment of her peoples, along with vessels, as well as the aftermath of what had taken place with the Gaspé affair. Yes, of course, uh, the, um, the Gaspé was burned by Rhode Island's people, but in the aftermath of the Gaspé affair, Parliament enacting the uh, Declaratory Act, which pretty much uh, allowed um, British officials, you know, to capture those whom were suspected or deemed suspicious of um, of causing trouble to British vessels without any proper means of uh, probable cause. They were arrested without uh, without any notification and uh, sent to England to be tried for uh, so-called offenses that. <laughs> didn't probably warrant enough evidence. So, yeah, I could see how the Rhode Islanders were very angry. And, yeah, so they decided to take it upon themselves and sever ties to the crown even before uh, July 4th, 1776 comes about. I should also uh, point out that at the start of 1776, 
New Hampshire and South Carolina were the first two of were the first of the uh, thirteen colonies to uh, oust their royal governors and establish um, governments with um, with non-appointed um, royal governors. So there were some unique firsts taking place prior to the um, ultimate um, the ultimate prize being that of the Declaration of Independence. Now, June seventh of seventeen seventy six saw Virginia's Richard Henry Lee issue a measure in Congress advocating all thirteen colonies were to be free and independent states whose previous ties with England were now considered irrelevant. It's pretty strong, especially coming from Virginia. It's very fair to say now that Virginia, being the largest of the thirteen colonies, is now realizing that there's really no going back now. We have to think about not only ourselves as Virginians, but what but what we have territory-wise. Because think about Virginia in 1776, folks. It, it, it entails modern-day West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, portions of uh, Illinois, Indiana, uh, western Pennsylvania, where we now know as Pittsburgh, um, portions of um, Michigan, Virginia's big, folks. I mean, this is it's a big deal. Virginia has to think about its uh, well-being, not just short-term, but long-term, including the fact that some of her most uh, prominent uh, individuals, like Mr. George Washington, and even probably Richard Henry Lee himself, have uh, land holdings uh, west of uh, Virginia into what we now know as, say, Ohio and western Pennsylvania. Now, June, come June 28th of 1776, a committee of five presented the Declaration of Independence to Congress as an entire body. Mr. Thomas Jefferson, Mr. Benjamin Franklin, Mr. John Adams, Mr. Robert Livingston, Mr. Roger Sherman. We all know Jefferson is from Virginia, John Adams from Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin from Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and Robert Livingston of New York. So, yes, it's one thing to know those five people by their names, but it's also important to know where they come from in terms of the colonies they're representing. So, so yes, it's a big thing here now. Uh, June 28, 1776, the Committee of Five is presenting the Declaration of Independence to Congress as an entire body. July 2nd saw Congress officially go forward in approving Richard Henry Lee's resolution so that means, folks, that Richard Henry Lee's resolution was not finally ad adopted or approved until just after three weeks. I, I can't imagine how much debate there was on that, but it took about three weeks to get that approved. But you know what? It took a lot of time to think this through, and that's not always a bad thing either. Because, as Benjamin Franklin said, we shall either um, band together or... Um, or hang uh, separately. In other words, we're either going to have to unite together as one or we will all have to hang separately, meaning that we will have to answer to those below us as to why we did not uh, unify as one when it, when it uh, was sorely uh, needed. So, um, th so yes, July 2nd uh, saw, sees Congress officially um, approving uh, Richard Henry Lee's resolution. From uh, June the 7th, now July 4th is the day where the document, being the Declaration of Independence itself, became formally approved after 
multiple revisions. And believe me, folks, there, you want to know how many revisions there it took? 86. I can only imagine how nervous Thomas Jefferson was. I can only imagine how how nerve-wracking he felt. But at the same time, he had a lot of good people around him helping him with these revisions, most notably Mr. John Adams and uh, Mr. Benjamin Franklin. The Declaration of Independence, it had more than the number of grievances that were that were finally agreed upon, but the number of grievances that are included in the document are 27. Some of them range from uh, famous ones like taxation without representation. Other ones uh, that come to my mind uh, pertain to what, w- what we're talking about in this uh, podcast topic series. How about uh, like cutting off colonial trade with the world, impressing sailors, restricting fishing in colonial seas, burning towns, plundering our coasts, trying us for offenses in places where crimes themselves weren't committed. Just a handful of the many 27 grievances, folks. Did the first privateer vessels receive their Continental Commission before July 4th of 1776? Yes. April 11th, 1776 saw Philadelphia's chance and Congress make a unique first step behind privateering. Mid-April of 1776 saw both vessels make their way into the Atlantic Ocean where they ultimately ventured towards the West Indies in search of prizes. Within a month, folks, the Chance and Congress captured four British merchant ships passing through from Jamaica to London. The prizes they captured are astounding. Let's, let's find out. The prizes captured ranged from 25 tons of cocoa Roughly 22,000 gallons of rum. How about 22,420 Spanish silver dollars to 200 gold Spanish, in quotation, half Joes, each having the equivalent of eight Spanish silver dollars? To me, folks, this is, this is a huge, huge find uh, that, to me, could almost go beyond the sky ceiling. For two vessels to be able to capture four British merchant ships and their prizes, based upon what I've described to you all in, in, the, in a short amount, short amount of time, that tells us right there that, um, con- number one, Congress did the right thing by approving privateering, and secondly, that privateering alone is going... Think of privateering as like the militiamen of the seas. In other words, it's like irregular style fighting on the seas. Yes, there are laws. I mean, yes, there are rules to 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 be adhered to, but without privateering, how are we going to be able to slow down uh, British ships? There has to be something done to slow down these guys because if we can't slow them down, we can't just sit back and allow someone else to do the job. In other words, for every um, action taken to slow down a British ship's uh, means of getting um, to American uh, waters where they can uh, resupply um, current British forces that are in existence, every time um, a mission is halted, that just means that it's going to, the longer the war itself will go, the longer the conflict it will, it will last, uh, the longer uh, British troops might go without getting adequate supplies in general. So, and better yet, when we get a hold of enemy ships, being that of the British, 
we are uh, also funding, we, we can go about funding the war a lot longer. Remember, folks, you know, we do have money, but it's paper money. Paper money doesn't have a whole lot of value. It might be worth something today, but tomorrow or the week after, it, it's not going to retain the same value. The paper money is its one of those games where the, the value is constantly fluctuating from one extreme to the other. But if we can get our hands on the hard money, which obviously we did, with, that the, uh, the chance in the Congress did with uh, 200 gold Spanish half-joes and 22,400 Spanish silver um, dollars, I'd say we have struck it rich. But even these findings alone can't be enough for us to sit back and say, well, um, we should be good for the long haul. No, we have to keep going on the, on the offensive. So early June of 1776 saw the chance in the Congress return to American waters where their captains landed vessels into Little Egg Harbor, New Jersey. The silver and gold were placed on wagons to be sent overland, overland to Philadelphia. The chance in the Congress were able to elude Britain's HMS Liverpool and made it into Philadelphia on June the 5th without being um, detected or captured. Congress received all the hard money and gave privateer owners an equal amount in continental money. I mean, to me, that, that, kind, of ex that kind of exchange is better than having no uh, equal exchange. But the owners of the Congress and the chance, including a select few investors, all came away with nearly 5,000 pounds each. I don't know what that would equate to in modern-day money, but I'm sure it would be a good hefty sum. The crewmen from both privateers earned up to 500 pounds each. Hey, can't complain about that. 5,000 pounds in 1776 would be worth around 650,000 pounds, or the equivalent of $900,000 in modern-day money. So we are looking at close to a million dollars. So that's our answer right there, folks. So 5,000 pounds in 1776 would be worth around 650,000 pounds um, in British money in today's time. Of course, all of Europe is pretty much now on the euro system, but in American dollars, it would be about 900,000 uh, or almost close to a million in today's time. The achievements of the chance in the Congress made it everywhere throughout the colonies to where the demands for other privateering missions became more feasible against a formidable foe, the mother country being that of England. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, folks, and uh, I must say that um, when I'm on the air again next, uh, we have a lot to uh, look forward to, and I'm sure many of you are wondering what could we be possibly talking about next, next time when I'm on the air next with you all. Well, I think it's fair to say that when I'm on the air next with you all, we're going to be um, learning about what is called a privateer, a privateersman's life. In other words, we need to learn about what type of men launched privateering cruises, what type of men signed on to crew privateers, why they did so given the risks involved, and how privateers and their crews went about their thrilling, lucrative, and dangerous business. So in other words, we need to get to know, we need to go behind the scenes and learn more about a privateersman's life and why they were willing to uh, make the ultimate sacrifices like so many 
of our men and women do uh, in modern day times, uh, regardless of the branch of military they serve in. Well, thank you again for being such ardent listeners, and um, I do hope to be back on the air with you all before Christmas. If for some reason I'm not, I will uh, definitely make sure to be back on the air with you all uh, right after Christmas Day. Uh, But wherever you all may live in the world, I hope that you all stay safe. And um, and, uh, again, thanks for being such ardent listeners, because because without you all, I don't know where I would be. So thank you for um, helping me make the impossible all the more possible. Take care for now and uh, stay safe.